Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Glad to be with you again. This is now week four of Straight Out of Context, our series where we are looking at common misinterpretations of uh, popular verses that we find in the Bible. So it's week four. We did an intro week one. Uh, this is our third week in a passage of scripture. I'm John Lemons, the minister to young adults here at First Baptist Church of Huntsville, Alabama, and joined like I am every single time by Sam Maxwell, who is our ministry resident to young adults. So Sam, mm. good to be back again. Yeah, again. And we are we are coming, we are recording this one now. This is the week that episode one has officially released. So that came out a few days ago. The night before that was sort of a big night in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I, you know, we I had, had a quiet night. I made dinner, got some extra sleep. It was wonderful. Yeah. What else happened? Oh, oh, there was a basketball game. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Sikkim Bears. Yeah. So Baylor won the national championship a couple nights ago. And then the next day we released our podcast recording with Dr. Todd Still from Truett Seminary at Baylor University. Mm-hmm. And the guy just happens to be working on our audio for us, doing our engineering uh, for this podcast series is also a Baylor alum, Patrick Chester. So I'm just, you know, I'm just going to say like before all that, uh, you know, we'd never had a professor from Baylor on before. We'd never had someone working on the audio from Baylor before. And Baylor had never won a national championship before. So I'm just going to say like those three things merging together, we'll take a little bit of the credit for for those stars aligning for for Baylor Mm -hmm. University. Now should we go full baseball player? skeptical mysticism like should we just not wash our underwear for the next four years or uh, i'll let you do that that's, uh, <laughs> that's true yeah so um another thing too so last last week we recorded episode three with a good friend of mine chad poe down in the houston texas area and one thing i meant to get into a little bit with that was he actually is where i got straight out of context from it was actually a sermon series that he did at his church the year before we did it as a bible study here and I actually texted him and was like, hey, uh, I'm going to steal that. And I did. And uh, we made it a Bible study. And now we're making it a podcast. And it's all because of my good friend, Chad Poe. He also is the, we, you know, we worked together, as we mentioned last week, we worked together in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we were, um, while we were there, constantly trying to think of like, what are some ways we could do things differently or whatever. And, and that was where the idea for what has become Light the Night was born. And he actually was the first one to do it. Um, he did it at his church. And they called it Light the Night. And that was another thing I texted him. I was like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. So um, Chad Poe has had a, a dramatic impact on um, on First Baptist Huntsville more than the people of First Baptist Huntsville know. Um, but that's it. I haven't stolen anything else from him. It's just those those two things. But uh, it was good to have him on and spend that time with him. We'll have another, another guest next week. But uh, this week is just me and you, man. Just me and you. Yeah. I hope that's enough for everybody. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I think we have a, a good show. I think we have some good stuff to talk about. So. Yeah. I'm excited. So why don't, why don't we jump right in? Yeah. So today we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, which is commonly um, translated as, you know, where two or three are, are gathered in my name. I'm I'm there with them or something to that effect. We'll actually read the NIV version here in a minute. Um, I do, before we get too further into that, Sam, I do want to talk because there may be some people listening who might say, well, how am I supposed to know? Like if I see, if a verse is on a bookmark or a verse is at the bookstore, you know, on a plaque or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's being sold and marketed this way, like how am I supposed to know that it's, that it's taken out of context? Like a context, is it, is it my fault? Um, and I want to say no. Like, so if you're listening and you're just kind of like, well, if you're feeling bad because you don't know all this, um, that Sam and I are explaining, like, it's not, it's not your fault. 
It's the fault of people like me and Sam who, A, either didn't take the time to explain it or B, don't understand it ourselves. Um, or C, in some cases, I would say very minute cases, there may be some that just realize the opportunity that some of these verses provide uh, by giving them a life outside of the context that they really were written in mm-hmm. and making a little bit of money off of it. So there yeah. could be a little bit of that, but it's not your fault. It's the fault of people like me and Sam. Um, if if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I never knew this. So that's exactly why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, and I, and I think a little bit what we talked about in our not first first episode, um, I think there is... Maybe we need to go back as modern readers and just grow our respect for the text itself. You know, maybe perhaps for a long time, uh, church, uh, clergy, whomever, leadership, you know, we just said, well, open up your Bible and whatever this verse means to you means to you, and that's okay. Um, but I think what we're realizing as we look through all of this series is, well, you can't really take the text apart from any of the rest of the text. And you don't necessarily have to be Dr. Still or a Bible expert to be able to understand it. But I think we have to appreciate the text and that we are reading someone's mail and that isn't intended for someone. And, you know, by speaking broadly, a lot of these people who wrote at this point in time were like the top of their class, right? You didn't write or read and do a lot of these other things if you weren't fairly intelligent, if you couldn't quite, you know, put these things together. So a lot of these things aren't written by accident. They're written by really smart people. And I, maybe it just means that we have to go back and start re- respecting the text and approach it prayerfully and respectfully to say, God, what are you trying to tell us? through the whole of this text. So yeah, I, I, as I mentioned, I think there's a richness and a depth to it. Um, but to what you were saying, you know, if we have someone who's listening and they're like, well, shoot, what do I do with my coffee mug now that says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength or, you know, what we're going to get into today. Do we just, do we just throw it away? Do we, you know, hold on to it because we can't trust John and Sam because they let us astray the first time? Yeah, no, so I, th- I would keep it and keep it as a reminder is what I would do. Um, keep it as a reminder that it wasn't meant for that. And hopefully um, it becomes a marker where every time you see it, you remember like, oh, well, that's that's not what I thought it meant. Um, and hopefully my goal with the exercise of this originally a Bible study and now podcast is that you have a greater understanding of the passage and that it enriches uh, its value to you mm-hmm. when you know what, it, what it's really getting at, what it's really saying. I think today's verse is a case like that. Um, I'll give you another example. You know, Sam and I do a Bible study on Tuesday nights. We were in Bible study the other night. And one of the things I always say here is interpret the Bible with the Bible. And you may not know what that means, so I'll give you an example of what that means. One of the verses that we were looking at the other day in our Bible study that came up in our discussion was in John 15, where Jesus says something to the effect of, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And we'll come across a, a verse like that today as well. And so someone asked, like, what does that mean? Because that I've asked for things and not gotten them. And I think we all could say that, you know, um, whether it be jobs or relationships or, you know, you wanted a Corvette or something. Uh, we've all been there and not gotten it. So what is it? What does it mean? And so to interpret the Bible with the Bible, and one of my other rules is apply it to the life of Jesus or apply it to the disciples. So the way that you see it commonly applied, apply it to their lives. So if we were to take that that verse, whatever you ask for, it will be given and apply it. Well, first interpret the Bible with the Bible. So is there another place in scripture that can help round out this idea for me? Then take it into the context of, of how did it work for Jesus? Okay. So is there a place in the Bible where Jesus asked for something and did not get it? Yes. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. So he didn't get that. He didn't get that request. Now we're talking about Jesus. So like ask whatever you wish and it will be granted. Well, like you and I aren't Jesus. We're not even close to that level. 
Um, let's look at some of his followers. Is there a place where Paul asked for something and did not get it? Yes. He talks in one of his Corinthian letters about, I think it's second Corinthians. I don't know. But anyways, he talks about, uh, I prayed three times for this thorn to, to be taken from my side and God re- responded to him. My grace is sufficient for you. So whatever ask whatever you wish means, and we can debate that. There's a couple different interpretations. Whatever it means, we know what it can't mean. And what it can't mean is literally ask whatever you wish because Jesus asked for something that he wished and Paul asked for something that he wished and they didn't get it. So if you can't apply it to Jesus's life and to Paul's life, you can't apply it to your life the way that certain verses are taking, taken. So for the listener at home who's wondering, like, how do I do this myself? Or, you know, how am I supposed to determine if a verse is being used out of context or not? That's one of the ways is mm-hmm. interpret it with the Bible. So find other passages that speak to whatever it is that's going on and apply it to the life of Jesus and apply it to the life of Jesus's followers. Mm-hmm. Um, the early church was, I mean, just every time they turned around being persecuted. So this idea that if you're a faithful believer, like everything in life will go fantastic for you. Well, like, that's not how the early church worked. They were all, they were dying. They were being put to death. So that's another one where like, you just can't, you just can't go there. Mm-hmm. So um, th- those are ways that you can at home on your own, when you're reading scripture, when you're putting together a Bible study, take some of these principles into account. Mm-hmm. Another thing you can do is what we'll talk about today in looking at the broader context. So with that um, said, Sam, we will look at our verse for today, Matthew chapter 18, 20. It's in the NIV is where I'm reading it from. And it says, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And some of the common misinterpretations with this, basically, you'll see this a lot on like Instagram or Facebook where people are like in a group of three people and they're in the mountains or they're at at a coffee shop or Yeah. yeah, at the beach or whatever. And this verse will be on there. I've also seen it attributed often to like prayer. So like two or three people will be pictured uh, in prayer again, at a coffee shop or at a couch, on a couch or whatever. And, and this is used in that way. And basically what it is being used to say is that God's presence is with you. A lot of times, if you take that one degree further, people will use this verse to say, I don't need the church. I can just get together with my friends mm-hmm. and, you know, we can meet up at the coffee shop and, and talk about the Bible or talk about our devotion. And that's good enough. And this verse is not saying that. And we'll get, we'll get into why. In, mm-hmm. in just a few moments. But those are some of the more common ways I've seen it misapplied or misinterpreted. Um, Sam, you, anything I'm missing or anything you'd add to that? No, I mean, I, I think you're right. And it, it goes back to something I believe you said last week is trying to read the text for what the text is trying to actually say to you instead of trying to read your own meaning onto it. And I think this is one of those occasions where you see a group of pals at the beach or the coffee shop and saying, well, we don't need church because wherever two or three are gathered, there I am with you. Um, so it's definitely one of those, like, we're, we want this text to mean that we don't have to go to church. We don't have to engage with that person who just like rubs me the wrong way in Sunday school. So I'm just going to stay at the coffee shop. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's used often to yeah. be an example, not to be involved in a church. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think we see it a lot. I can worship at home. Um, but I think the big thing is one of the greatest gifts of Jesus to believers um, is the church, right? The the church is the bride of Christ. And the church is people who believe in Jesus coming together. So I don't think to go to read the Bible with the Bible, I don't think you can read the Bible and say that Christ has given you the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And then say, well, I don't need that because God is saying that I can go and be my best by myself and do 
Christ by myself, or I can have a faith that is completely healthy and sustained by myself in my flat in the middle of wherever. Yeah. And that's actually another thing. I'll get back to my friend, Chad Poe. Uh, I've heard him say often um, when people say things like, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. The church is Jesus's bride. So that'd be like someone saying to you, I like you, but I don't like your wife. Mm-hmm. And to which you would probably say, all right, well, buzz off. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, the two uh, go, go hand in hand. Now is the church messed up? Absolutely it is. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit today as well. Um, but definitely this is not a verse that's that's an excuse for not being a part of a church, not not being invested in a church. Now, what does that look like? That's another discussion as well, um, particularly coming out of a year that we've just had where we're all separated from one another and we haven't been able to meet together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a temptation for people to come out of the year that we've just had and just and say like, well, I've 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 managed this past year without being a part of a church. Maybe I can, uh, you know, just keep on not doing that and be okay and also be a Christian and mm-hmm. uh, still maintain my faith. And this verse doesn't really allow for that. So let's get into sort of my uh, four rules of interpretation. Uh, we, I, I sort of highlighted it earlier, but again, uh, how does this apply to the life of Jesus? Um, the second part is, do you see only one translation of this verse used? So when you uh, see it on a coffee cup or on a plaque or something like that, sometimes you will see only one verse or only one translation of that verse used because other verses make it clear that it, it means something else entirely. Um, you see that a lot with Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. You don't see that as much with this one. This one pretty much says the same thing across many translations, but that's one way. Another way on your own at home, to determine if something is being taken out of context is look at various translations and see if they all sort of say the same thing. Also, we can talk about what does it mean to the original hearers. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. And then again, interpret the Bible with the Bible. So um, let's talk about how it applies to the life of Jesus. So one of the things that you see with Jesus uh, often in the Gospels, when he's presented to us as going about his ministry on earth, um, we are told in Luke chapter four, uh, he went to Nazareth. Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Uh, We also told him, Matthew 4, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Um, In John chapter 10, we're told that Jesus came to the festival festival of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. The festival of dedication would have been Hanukkah, and Jesus was in the temple courts. Um, So Jesus is very much portrayed as someone who is very involved in what would have been church to them at the time, which is the synagogue. We'll talk more about that in a a moment. But if anybody could have been, could have had a relationship with God and not gone to church or not gone to the synagogue, it would have been Jesus. Mm -hmm. But he's always going into synagogues. And Luke, I love how Luke says he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. So number one, how does this apply to the life of Jesus? Well, it it doesn't if you're going to say, I don't need the church because I can just get together with my friends. Jesus mm-hmm. is going to the synagogue all the time. Yeah. Uh, another thing is we can look at how, or we can interpret the Bible with the Bible, like I said. So how is how are we told in the Bible about how the Spirit dwells with us? Well, we're told multiple ways. There's nothing special about the two or three is what I'm getting at. So there, there are times when Jesus says uh, in John chapter 3, I tell you, I tell you, and this is singular, you, individual, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and the Spirit. 
He says in first, or in first Corinthians six, um, this is Paul talking. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you individual? But then also there are plural accounts where, um, in first Corinthians three, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? This is a plural usage. And, uh, in John 14, Jesus says, I will send the advocate to you or I will send the Holy Spirit to you who will be with you forever. And those are plural accounts. So, that's one of the things that we miss in English is we just have the word you and it can be plural. It can be singular. We don't really know. But in the biblical language, they have a plural version. And the closest thing we have is y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremiah 29, 11 is that way. I know the plans I have for y'all. That is very plural. And there are accounts where the spirit is given or the spirit is, is um, like we are told that the spirit is with us in a plural sense. And it's more than two or three people. Mm-hmm. Uh so I want to say this, like the spirit is with you and we're told, told in scripture, the spirit's with you at all times. Um, whether you're by yourself or whether you're in a group of 50 or a hundred or whatever. Um, so there's nothing really special about the two or three as it pertains to the presence of God being with you. Mm-hmm. Um, that is more of a reference to historical, uh, Israel and Judaism and the idea of having a witness present, um, particularly in matters of, uh, accusation or trials or things like that. And uh, Sam, I know you did a little bit of research on, uh, on this a little bit more in the background of the, uh, the two or three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this idea of two or three, um, so largely speaking, if we want to talk about the context, let's get it in context since it's been out of context. Um, we, I think our, our modern translations of the Bible can sometimes do us a disservice because they give us those, those, those little headings. So we'll see a heading and we'll be like, oh, this is a self-sustaining block. But really, it belongs to a larger, a much larger piece of text. So you have to read it within the wholeness of the text and not just the individual little pieces. But having said that, there definitely is a history that ties back to this. And you know, we'll have to get into a little bit more of the broader context of the rest of this chapter and leading up to it. But it goes, it goes to uh, Leviticus. And basically, it's the same idea of like, don't hate each other, um, but rebuke them whenever they sin as not to damage the community. Um, and that's what I read in my Oxford commentary. So it's not just a, you know, some backwoods person telling me this. Like, so I think that immediately should tell us, well, maybe, maybe there's something more than just two or three people. Maybe it's talking about a larger collection of people. So what do we do if it means that it has to do with Leviticus and holding people accountable to the way you live in life with God? Yeah, Jesus talks about the two or three a little bit more in the broader passage, and we'll read through that in just a few moments. Um, but there's more going on there, and, and I say all this to say, we we say all this to say, there's nothing really special about the two or three. The Spirit's with you on your own. The Spirit's with you when you're at church and worship with 500 people. Another thing to look at is just the context of the passage. And so this is something you at home can do, is when you see a verse like this, open the Bible and go to the verse and look around it and see what else is there. And in this, this one is one of the easier ones to identify the setting and the structure of what's going on and to identify sort of what all is being said here. Um, There's more than than what's on the surface of just this one verse. So if you were to look in Matthew 18, 20, where this verse is and look around, if you have a red letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, you're going to see a whole lot of red right here and right before it which is telling us that this is a part of something that Jesus is saying. And if it's all read, it's going to be very lengthy, um, which means this is probably like a sermon or some sort of teaching lesson. So it's not meant to be taken on its own. Bits and pieces of it are not meant to be taken on their own. They're meant to be taken together. 
Um, if you look a little bit broader and you look in uh, the tail end of Matthew chapter 17, the chapter right before this, it says that Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, which means that pretty much everything after this is a part of a conversation. It should be taken together. So they've arrived somewhere, we're given the setting, and then everything else is pretty much in red. So it's just telling us like they're in a certain place and they're about to have this conversation. Matthew chapter 18, 1 gives us the context for the conversation. It says that at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the rest of the chapter is a discussion on this, including chapter 18, verse 20, which is our verse for today. So it's all based around this idea that they're in Capernaum, they're in this setting, and these the, his disciples have come to him and asked him this question. And then he answers them with a, a lot of passages that you would find very familiar that are often broken up and given to us as individual sermons. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of what Jesus is saying here, it's all meant to be taken together. And on the surface, it doesn't look like it all goes together and makes much, much sense, but it does. And, and we'll, we'll dive into that now. Yeah. So Jesus's reply basically is, uh, he, he starts out saying, unless you become like children, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. We've all heard that before. Um, and, and then he says, whoever causes one of these little children to stumble, he said, it's, it would be better for you if you had a millstone tied around your neck and, and you jumped into the sea. It's, it's a bad thing to do that. And then yeah. he goes on to say, yeah. if your hand or your eye causes you to stumble, then to cut it off. Then he goes on to say, if a man has a hundred sheep and loses one, he goes and finds the one. Then he gets into the the part of it where we find our verse today, where he talks about if your brother or sister sins, you go to them in order to restore them and restore your relationship. And then he's asked at the end of this conversation, he's asked how many times should we forgive? And that's where he says, uh, not seven times, but 77 times. And that this is how my father will forgive you. And Mm -hmm. that the extent to which you forgive others is the extent to which you will be forgiven. So again, um, this all doesn't look like it goes together. uh, But when you get to Matthew chapter 19, the the verse says, when Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee and Capernaum is in Galilee. So again, this is an indicator. And if you were to look at home and open your Bible and try to get an idea for what's going on with a verse like this that might be taken out of context. This is These are some indicators that you can use. So like, look at the setting that we're given. Mm. Look how long or how lengthy the passage is where Jesus is speaking and see if there is more there than what you initially see on the surface with your verse. So again, this is a sermon by Jesus that sounds disconnected, but if you look at it closely, there's a consistent theme of stumbling, restoring, and forgiving. So he starts out talking about stumbling. Don't cause children to stumble. If something makes you stumble, get rid of it. Then he talks about restoring. If you lose a sheep, you go find it. If your brother or sister sins, go to them. Then he talks about forgiving. And that's a part of the restoration process as well. So this is all meant to be taken together. It's a consistent theme of stumbling, restoring, and forgiving. And if I could summarize it for us in a paragraph, this is the essence of the sermon that Jesus is saying. Let the children come. If anyone causes them to stumble, it's going to be bad news. Get rid of whatever causes you to stumble and then seek or restore those who have wandered away or themselves have stumbled. Further, if someone has stumbled against you, go to them in order to restore them and then forgive them just as you have been forgiven and just as you have been restored when you stumble. The Father will forgive you as much as you extend forgiveness to others. So again, this is a consistent theme of stumbling, restoring, and forgiving. Mm -hmm. And this is where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name. I am there with them. And so we're getting a little bit 
more clued in as to what is going on here in this passage. Now, basically what Jesus is saying, what he is promising is this is the work that he is going to be present in the midst of. This this work of restoring people, this work of forgiving people, this work mm-hmm. of basically being in a relationship with people. Because how else do you describe a relationship than being with people who sometimes rub you the wrong way, sometimes tick you off, Sometimes like they're your polar opposite, which you find that in the church more than more than your own friend groups even. Yet you're still called to love that person. You're still called to forgive that person. You're still called to restore that person. It is hard. It is messy. It is dirty. And it is the muck of life. And that is where Jesus is saying, when you do these things, I am with you. It's mm-hmm. not when you're like palling around at the coffee shop or like skipping church and like, you know, hanging out on your back porch and talking about what you read in your devotion that day. It's talking about when you go into the nitty gritty of having relationships with people and seeking them out and restoring them to the fellowship of the family of the church, when you go to the nitty gritty of forgiving them when they have wronged you, that is when the presence of Jesus is found. Mm-hmm. And that is messy, but it'll, it is also powerful. And in so doing, like you, you'll become to be made more like Jesus who came and sought us and did this himself. Like we talked last week about Philippians chapter 2. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus left heaven and came to earth and he came in the form of a, a child who was dependent on others. He was born in a stable uh, where they kept the stinky, smelly animals. Like that dude entered the dirt and grit of life in order to restore us to God. So mm-hmm. what he is saying here is exactly what he's done for us. And this is what he's asking us to do for others. Yeah, and I, I think you're great. That's great. Um, and just to like a little side note, if you happen to be meeting with two people at a coffee shop so you can pray with each other once a week at six o'clock in the morning before you go to work, keep doing that. That is that is beautiful. That is wonderful. Um, you are enriching each other's lives. You are challenging one another and holding each other to a, a standard. So we're not saying don't do that. Just don't mistake that for being and belonging to the church. And, you know, taking a step back to this text, largely to frame what you were saying, John, like, this isn't necessarily a passage on a bunch of random things. This is broadly like a Christian ethic of how to live in Christian relationships with with one another within the context of community. Um, you know, Jesus didn't have like one or two people that he constantly hung out at coffee shops with. I mean, he generally had no less than 12 people with him at any point in time, not to mention the multitudes of other people who happened to potentially be following him around as well. But even the biblical idea of living in faith was inseparable from living in community. Um, If you look in the Old Testament, there is no understanding or notion of the individual. The idea of individual freedoms or rights or abilities to do things would be, I mean, they just, it would be incomprehensible. Uh, You can look back to the story of Jericho, right? The people of God walked around Jericho, the walls fell down, they, you know, they went in and they captured the city and they were told, don't take anything. And one of them did and hit it. And like there was a threat to the existence of the whole of the community because one person did something wrong. And we don't think about that, but that's basically what this is. It's saying within this, how to do relationship with other believers within community, we have to live with one another even when it's hard and we have to exist within a Christ-like relationship with the spirit indwelling in us so that we have to go and rebuke someone or ask for forgiveness from someone that we exist within that Christ life framework. Yeah. And and 
getting back to what you said at the very beginning of what you said, yes, absolutely. If you're meeting with a small group at a coffee shop, somehow investing in one another's lives in that way, keep doing that. That is meant to be an extension of the ministry of the church, just not a replacement of the ministry of the church. And that's where you you get away from the, the intent of what this passage is saying. Uh, Jesus had his 12 disciples that he went around with. And inside of that, he had the three disciples that he was even tighter with, uh, Peter, James, and John. So that's okay. That's an extension of the ministry of the church. But like we said earlier, like Jesus still went to the synagogue. He still was heavily involved in that. Mm-hmm. The disciples were too. So that's another thing we talked about. Um, we talked about applying this to the life of Jesus, applying this to the disciples uh, or, or to the earliest followers. What did it mean? What did it mean to them? So we talk about uh, the synagogue. Because I find this interesting when you read the passage. Actually, let me go ahead and read verses 15 through 20. Because that's the that's a little bit zooming out a little bit uh, on this passage that we have in verse 20. So he says in verse 15, starting in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, so again, he's talking about restoring and forgiving. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. So we're going to come back around to that word church that he uses. Then he says, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything that you ask for, it will be done for them in my fa- by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So we have a couple of issues here. Um, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's a weird saying. And in the broader context of what's being said here is if you will do the work of the kingdom of seeking those who stumble, restoring those and forgiving those. If you do the work of the kingdom here on earth, the work of the kingdom will be manifested in heaven, basically. And if you don't do the work of the kingdom here, it won't be manifested in heaven, is the gist of what verse 18 was. And then we get into where he says, if if two of you on earth agree about anything, it will be done for you. That's kind of like what we talked about in the earlier part of this episode. What can that mean? What can't that mean? Mm-hmm. But again, it's getting into this idea of restoring people and forgiving people. And that's where, where two or three gather in my name. There I am with them. I want to get back to what he says in verse, uh, I think it was 18 or 17, where he says, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Because when Jesus is saying this, there is no church. The church doesn't exist yet. The church doesn't exist until after he ascends into heaven and the spirit comes in Acts chapter two. Jesus would have used the word ecclesia, which technically meant assembly and came to be known as the word church. Uh, So when we say the word church today, most of us think church building or something like that. But the word literally means gathering or assembly. And so when Jesus says, take it to the church, what he's saying is take it to the assembly, take it to the larger family. And that's what he's meaning there. The model for what became the church came from the model of the synagogue. And so the synagogue was separate from the temple. The temple was the main place in ancient Judaism where the presence of God resided, where you would go and you would perform sacrifices and things like that. The problem is as Judaism spread, or as people lived in different parts of the world, that was not a very practical thing that you could do. And so synagogues began popping up, where, which became places where people would gather for singing, they would gather for fellowship, they would gather for Bible study mm-hmm. and, uh, and worship. Uh, so that became the model for what the church became. Uh, the synagogue was basically, uh, it was in many communities, and it was a building um, that most of the time functioned as a community center. So 
you'd have this building somewhere in a community that would double as a community center, a school, a court, or a place to study during the week. And then on the Sabbath, it served as a place where the assembly of people met for prayer or for Bible study. So it sounds a lot like church today, uh, and particularly First Baptist, like, man, people are using our building all the dang time, uh, but we reserve it for Sunday for worship. So many church practices were based on that, and these would have been the customs that Jesus would have followed. So this w- would have been the idea in mind when he says, mm-hmm. take it to the assembly. And um, this meant that that worship and study and fellowship and community celebration and serving others and the governing of the community were all done by the same people in the same place. And that became the model for for what the church became. When the first Christians began to share the gospel and to spread, they understood their mission as being to start churches. So again, how does this apply to the life of Jesus? He went to the synagogue. He was heavily involved in it. How does this apply to Jesus's followers? They planted churches because they thought it was that important. They started churches and they most often started in synagogues. Um, they most often used buildings. And a lot of times you'll hear that sort of knocked nowadays where you'll hear people say, well, the early church didn't meet in huge buildings and they weren't institutionalized. They were house churches. They actually did meet in buildings first. They met in synagogues first. Mm-hmm. They only started becoming house churches because there were two factors. One, if if a church had spread to a place where there wasn't a synagogue or the synagogue was unavailable for the, them to meet, then they would meet in a house. Mm-hmm. The other factor that contributed to that was once the church began growing and became a threat to some communities or a threat even to Judaism in some communities, they began to be persecuted. So it began, be, became impractical <laughs> to meet in the synagogue because you'd be arrested mm-hmm. or put to death. So house churches came about as a result of that, but the intention was not house churches from the get-go. Now, there's nothing wrong with house churches. We're trying to do that with our TV church right now. We want to we eventually establish that to where we have a network of house churches that are doing that together. But that's meeting in a building, meeting in a synagogue as they originally were doing there was nothing particularly wrong with that, and uh, it, it would have been sort of the framework that they had to go with, mm-hmm. and they began meeting in, in homes out of necessity. And this was the model that the early church had. So this idea that you can be a Christian and not be a member of a church just is, it is a foreign concept to the earliest disciples because they understood that to be their mission from day one, and they went all over the known world starting churches and following this practice of what the synagogue was. And so that Mm -hmm. applies, again, very much back to this passage that we have in the broader meaning of what is happening in Matthew chapter 18. Again, Jesus is talking about when people stumble, when you stumble, or, you know, placing roadblocks in your life that keep you from stumbling, restoring people and seeking after people. If your brother or sister sins, go to them. If one of your sheep is lost, you go find them. So it's talking about restoring people. And then it's finally talking about forgiving people. You do that. In the context of a church body, um, you can do that in friendship groups as well, but it's meant to be done in the context of a wider church body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I I can't remember what it is. I was looking it up, but this really doesn't look foreign from what we see in Leviticus. It also doesn't seem foreign from what we see Paul doing later in his ministry. When was he writing to the church at Corinth? I think. And there were uh, various issues going on, and he says, "Look, go and talk to the person, and tell them what's going on in their lives, and tell them that they need to, like, they need to cut this sin out of their life because it's damaging to them and it's damaging to us. And try, and if they won't listen, then try again. And if they still won't listen and they still continue to do it, then, you know, maybe maybe ask them to not come back to the community. But it's this is the same idea. You see someone in sin, you go and you say, "Hey, this is damaging to yourself." 
and you are damaging yourself and losing your like walking away from what you know to be right um, and it has eternal consequences if you leave faith or if you continue down this road like what happens you know if you rebel against god in life then you will have rebelled against god in eternity um so it's the bible with the bible it's the same idea we see it in a couple of places this isn't a standalone um, i think it would be harder to find another place in the bible where it says hang out at the coffee shop with your bros Right. And so this is what we've tried to establish in our young adult ministry here. So we, we ask every young adult to be to have a regular pattern of what we call our core four. So regularly participate in worship, Bible study, fellowship, and service. This is encapsulated in our church motto that we know, love, and serve Christ together. I uh, I tell people often as well that everybody knows the, the idea of love God, love others. We believe that we are called to love God and love others because we are created for life with God and life with others. Because when you look into scripture, the portrayal that we have of the afterlife, of the life after our life here on earth, is a portrayal of a party and a worship service. Like it's it's gathering, it's often often described as a banquet or a table, a meal together. And then the other picture that you see often is, is everybody singing around the throne of God. Um, so what we do now in being a part of a church, fellowshipping with people in the church, doing worship and Bible study with people in the church, and serving alongside of people in the church, all of that is a shadow of what we will be doing in eternity. So hear me say this. There's nothing wrong with having friend groups and leaning on them in order to sharpen who you are. You are designed for that. And I'll get into some more specific examples here in a moment. But the end goal of this is that we would look like Jesus and we are preparing ourselves for a life with Jesus when all this is said and done. And the picture that we have of that life with Jesus is not us and our two friends at the coffee shop. It's us around the throne of God or around God's table with the whole family of God. So so it is meant as much as your friends uh, can contribute to your life and help you make you a better person, the end of all of this is going to be us with gathered with the whole community of God's people. Um, so if that's just something that you're not like, you're like, well, I don't really dig that here. I don't know if you're going to dig it in heaven either then, because that's what that's what's going to happen there. So yeah. um, that's why this is so important. Um, don't hear us knocking the, the validity of friendships. Uh, it, those are very much important, and those are tools that God gives us. But doing those apart from the community of a church are... Um, is not what we were designed for and it's not what we will be doing uh when it all is said and done mm -hmm. yeah c.s lewis i mean says pretty much the same thing right it's any if if this is unbearable for you now then you are not going to be able to bear eternity with god and god's people right so it's it's not so much anything else but it's a this is the preparation for what we're going to do in eternity this is the beginning of what we're going to see and experience and enjoy and have pleasure in for eternity. Yeah, and uh, there's other part passages where Jesus says, essentially, you're going to be surprised by who's there and who's not. So uh, that's another factor as well mm -hmm. to uh, to keep in mind. Um, at, as we wrap up, Sam, um, you know, I think there's a couple examples where uh, this idea of um, the power of relationships and the power of investing in other people 
and the impact it can have on us. I found two examples of that. One is um, actually in Canada, they found uh, basically they took um, people who were sex offenders and you know had gone to prison, had served their time. They found that there was a 70% decrease in repeat offenses if they had taken those offenders and placed them into small groups with people. Um, so basically there were people that were like, yeah, I'd be willing to be a friend with this person to give them someone to lean on, to give them someone to challenge them, that sort of thing. And those who were able to invest in that had a 70% decrease in repeated offenses. Uh, another example is AA. Um, a lot of people know Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, groups like that. There is some debate over the scientific validity of those programs. But what there is no debate over is the impact they have on people who get invested in them to the point where they develop relationships. It's the relationships in those sorts of programs that work more often than not. Uh, and so, again, we are built for relationships. God has designed us to fix things like this with friends. What we are not designed for is to do it on our own. We are not designed uh, to do this. A lot of times what you'll see in the context of ministry, Sam, uh, you and I, I'm, I'm sure have seen this. Sometimes people will have problems in their lives, hidden problems, and they, the, the thought is, well, if I just get more involved in the church, or if I just get deeper involved into Bible study, then God will take this problem away from me. Mm -hmm. And then what happens when you have some sort, some sort of scandal, this isn't the case every time, but it is the case often. You see these scandals where these people have these huge hidden problems in their lives, sometimes abusive ones. And um, not in every case, but in many cases, what you come to find is they got involved in ministry as a means to try to get that taken away. And then they got heavily involved and realized like that wasn't, that wasn't going to do it. And now what do I do? So whether you're a pastor or whether you're a, a lay leader, you know, who's the head of the deacons or whatever, like then being honest becomes a threat to your, your validity or, or to the uh, position you've attained um, or even to the reputation that you've earned. Uh, so you, you see this a lot of times, even in ministry where people get involved in ministry, whether it's vocational or whether it's lay ministry, thinking this is going to fix my problems and it doesn't. You're not designed to fix your problems in ministry like that. You're designed to fix your problems with friendships. People do this with marriage. People do this with jobs. People do this with children. Well, if I just got married, then everything would be great. Oh, well, that didn't work. If I just had a kid, then everything would be great. Oh, that didn't work. Well, if I just had a new job, well, that doesn't work. Like Those sorts of things aren't designed to fix us. It's these friendships it's, and, and it's the muck and the mess of them is where Jesus promises to be. And it's hard work. It's not pretty at all. But that is where uh, that is where the, the presence of God lives, in that dirt, in that muck, in that mud. And we see that from day one of Jesus' life when he came and lived in a stable, spent his first night there to represent him entering into our mess and being a part of the life that we have. And I'll just close with saying this, Sam. The church, the universal church, has been battered by confrontation the last few years um, by people who have pointed out abuses, rightly so. Um, and those do need to be pointed out. If something like that is happening in your church, like by all means, call it out. Mm -hmm. That is what this is about. But what it is about is saying like, when you do that, and when you go about the messy process of trying to right things and trying to keep people from stumbling and trying to restore people and trying to forgive people, then that is the, that is where God is presence, present. So the mess that we've seen in churches the last few years, I think is an indicator of this. Like it's an indicator of God's presence, God's presence being involved, God using people to clean up his house a little bit and to get things back into order. Now, does forgiving and restoring people mean just like shrugging your shoulders and being like, all right, everything's fine now? No, like 
there's still accountability and there's still consequences for actions. Um, so that means if you've been in a church that has been abusive, um, there needs to be accountability for that. Mm -hmm. But calling that to account and being involved in that process is exactly what Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, but in particular verse 20, is about doing that, doing that in your friendships, doing that in your relationships at church will have a beneficial effect for you. Uh, but also for your church and for those people. And that is where the presence of Christ is to be found. So any closing words? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that's a good word. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, well, shoot, what do I do? Or how do I protect myself from this? Or maybe there's something in my life that I know I probably need to be talking to someone about so that they can walk with me through this. I think that's the first thing, right? Is prayerfully ask God to eliminate some people in your life that, will be safe people that you can open up to, you know, have your eyes and ears open and be listening and find, I think this is someone that I can really trust. I feel a leaning toward them to maybe speak with them about whatever I may be going through because we need each other, right? That's, that's what this is saying. And on the other side of it too, if you are in close relationship with someone that you dearly love, um, calling out something that's going on in their life. Um, I mean, that that's loving the person, right? Just Letting it go by without saying saying anything and just watching them spiral um, is not loving them enough to say, look, there is a root of sin in your life that we have to get down and dirty in the muck and the mire, and we have to pull that root out because that root is just going to continue to keep poisoning the fruit on your tree. Yeah, and I will say this too. Um, like I said, ministry, podcasts, marriage, kids, none of that is meant to fix you. And it's not going to if you're looking for it to do that. So a great place to turn, um, turn to a friend, turn to a minister, call Divine Counseling Center if you're in North Alabama. Um, they, they are credentialed. They are professional counselors. They will help you through anything that you're dealing with. And believe me, they see all kinds of things. So mm -hmm. those are places to turn. And that is a part of the process too that, that is being talked about in this verse. It's, it's in being honest and confronting um, some of the dirtier aspects of all of us that you will find uh, the presence of God mm -hmm. uh, at work and dwelling. Yeah, because it's not the perfect that need the church. It's the broken, it's the dirty, it's the imperfect people that need church or the people that need saving. And we're yeah. those people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that's Matthew 18 in a nutshell. Um, and hopefully we gave, we gave you some tips today as well on how to do this in your own your own life or in your own Bible study. Uh, so maybe you can look at a passage that you think might be taken out of context and look at the surrounding information around it and uh, apply some of these tips on your own. So yeah, with all that you, said, yeah. Or oh, if ahead. you think you found a verse that's normally taken out of context, shoot us an email. Maybe we'll give you a Chick-fil-A gift card or, come, or something if we find a really good one. Yeah, yeah, be a, yeah that's a good challenge to, to offer out. So we'll put that out there as well. Thank you all for being with us today on this podcast. We'll be back next week with a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, you guys probably know that passage. We'll have a special guest next week as well. Looking forward to that. Another friend in my past who I think will have a lot of insight for us as well. Sam, thank you so much for being with us. If you listened today and you liked it, we ask that you, you know, please share it on your social media profiles or text it to a friend or whatever. And rate and review us as well if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. I think we have 12 five-star reviews right now, Sam. So we'll see if that goes up anytime in the next week or so. And finally, I want to give uh, some special thanks to Ellen Christian for doing our artwork for our podcast this through this series and Patrick Chester, as we mentioned earlier, for doing our 
sound audio uh, engineering. So um, be sure to check the show notes as well. We'll have some some bits and information in there, um, a little bit of a deeper dive on some of this stuff. And as always, check us out at fbchsv.org slash youngadults to find out more about what's going on and how you can get more plugged in into the church and into what we have going on through worship, Bible study, fellowship, and service here at First Baptist Church. So that's all I have. Again, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you guys again in one more week. music that was playing in the background. Hope you're having a good week.